I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 106. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let us praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Father, we are gathered here praising you in song and Praising you um, as we study the scriptures, and we pray that your spirit would be present with us, that we would understand these truths, and that we would leave with a heart's desire to praise you all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen. Well, back when we studied Psalm 130, not too long ago, of course, we learned that it was part of a group of psalms that extend from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. And so now it's Psalm 146. This is also part of a group of Psalms that end the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 146 to 150, and they're called the Five Hallelujah Psalms. And they all go together, and they're often referred to as the Double Hallelujah Psalms because each begins and ends with the word Hallelujah. That is, uh, praise the Lord. If you look at verse 1 of our psalm, praise the Lord. And if you look at verse 10 of our psalm, praise the Lord. And that's true of all of these five psalms. Uh, it's kind of a crescendo of, of praise to the Lord at the end of the book of psalms. In the earlier psalms, uh, you discover that the, the psalmists are laying bare their griefs. This is why we identify with the Psalms, and it, it's such a, a wonderful book, because they, they just share their hearts, their, their shames, they'll share their sins, and their doubts, their fears. They cry out to God in confession, they cry out to God in confusion, their defeats, their victories, their ups and downs in life. They even cry out with rebellious words at times, anger towards God. But when we arrive here to Psalm 146, all the emotional ups and downs are behind us, and now all we hear is praise, praise to the God who reigns forever. And it culminates in Psalm 150, where praise is mentioned 13 times in just six verses. Praise the Lord. Praise God, praise Him over and over again. Praise the Lord, praise Him, praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. The psalmist wants us to understand. He, he wants us to grasp that the chief end of man is indeed to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And, and so the book ends with five doxologies, as it were. 
culminating in the final doxology of Psalm 150, where you just hear praise the Lord over and over. Now, now here is what is fascinating about these five psalms is that, yes, they are doxologies, as I just shared at the end of the Psalter, praising God. But they're also doxologies that correspond with the first five books of the Bible. Psalm 146 is a doxology for the book of Genesis. Psalm 147 for Exodus, Psalm 148 for Leviticus, Psalm 149 for Numbers, and Psalm 150 for Deuteronomy. And it's seen, this connection is seen through the literary connection between the content of each the psalm and the content of each of the books of the Pentateuch. There's words and echoes of the events found in each of the psalms that correspond with events that happen in the first five books. In our case, it's Genesis. You look at Psalm 146, and you can notice the connection. In verse 3, we have the word Adam. In a son of man, the word for man is Adam. In verse 4, we have the word earth, which is really the word Adam again. And when he when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. He returns to Adam. Well, the same word and concept is found in Genesis 3.19. God is speaking to Adam, and he says, By the sweat of your face, your face you shall eat bread till you return to the Adam, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and the dust you shall return. And, and, and so Psalm 146 is echoing Genesis 3. And we also have mention of the God of Jacob in verse 5, who is the son of Isaac, written about in Genesis 25 and following. You have the mention of God being the maker of the heavens and earth in verse 6, which is obviously the account of the creation account in uh, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. And finally, you have the mention of the Lord setting prisoners free and giving food to the hungry. And you read about that in the story of Joseph. And so Psalm 146 is the doxology of Genesis. And so the book ultimately ends in praise to God. And what a fitting ending it is. Consider what you learn in the book of Genesis. Uh, We can't go over all the chapters, of course, but man was created in the image of God and given the capacity to worship and praise their creator. And then what happened? Man fell into the sin. You know the story. They turned away from God. They exalted themselves above God. And they brought despair and destruction and death to God's good earth. And this theme of death and destruction due to sin play itself out over and over throughout the book. Cain kills Abel. The devastating flood. You have the Tower of Babel. You have Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet in that context, in the midst of the destruction, in the midst of the death, we also find God's grace. Redeeming men and women despite themselves. He promises very early on, right after the fall, right in the midst of the, uh, the fall, the promises to raise up a savior from the seed of the woman. He establishes a, a covenant of grace. He promises to bless all the peoples of the earth who put their trust in him. Man sins, God graciously redeems. Man sins again, God graciously redeems. And so it goes on until the, uh, the day when all that will be put to an end. When all the toil and the struggle we now experience on earth will be gone. We'll have what uh, the storybooks talk about, the happily ever after. We all, we all long for a, a, a cheerful ending. 
uh, life will end. We, we, we've seen that this week. We lost uh, uh, people to, to death, and we, we'll have funerals next week that'll celebrate the lives and, and reflect upon the deaths of those that we loved. But we all long for a cheerful ending. And, and that cycle is promised to be broken. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more sh- suffering and sorrow and sin. Um, there'll be no more oppression, as the psalmist points out. There'll be no more hunger. The prisoners will be set free. There, will, there won't be prisoners, that is, to set free. There'll be no blind to give their sight. There'll be no need to lift up the lowly or watching over and upholding the sojourners, the widows and the fatherless. It'll just be unqualified praise to God. On that day, the cities of men will give way to the city of God. Death will die and eternal life will begin. We read about this in in Revelation chapter 22. We're told, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Everything will be made right. We will return to Eden, as it were, but it will actually be better than Eden. We'll return to Eden, but we'll have the added blessing of not being able to fall into sin like Adam and Eve did. And so it will be better. And so praise toward Almighty God will come naturally at that point. It will come easily. But the question is, what about now? That's our future, and it's important, and we'll see in a second. But what about the time between the promise, which has already been given, and its full fulfillment? Now pain still exists. Sin still sways our hearts. Tears still flow. Death still comes. What are we to do now? And the psalmist tells us we are to praise the Lord. We're to praise the Lord. With our eye to the future, with our eye to the future hope of our restoration and, per- and made perfect, secure in that promise of our blessed future, we're to live now praising God despite the suffering and despite the sorrow. Uh, of course, we don't understand all that's going on that God is doing in our lives and in this world. And, and, if, and if all we did was have our eyes to the world, we'd start wondering, does He even exist at all or is He doing anything? But, but we do understand, if we know God, enough about His nature to praise Him despite the difficulties. And so do you want to know where you stand spiritually now? Do you, do you, where you stand, the answer can be found in the intensity of your desire to praise the Lord. It's easy to praise God when things are going well. Uh, in fact, you're taught that by a lot of these guys on television. That's when you're supposed to praise God. Otherwise, God's cursing you if you're not making riches. But, but the true test of spiritual maturity, for anybody who cares to read the whole of the Bible that teaches how they suffered, the saints suffered, is whether we can praise Him in our suffering, if we can praise Him in the difficult times as well. See, a growing Christian is a praising Christian. A a maturing Christian is a worshiping Christian. And so a soul that is enraptured with God, a soul that claims to be enthralled with the Lord, will pour forth praise from his or her lips as long as they live and despite their circumstances. Is that your heart's desire? Is that you? Is that what you want? 
See, praise is one of the truest evidences of where we are spiritually. Are we praising God in the good times? Are we praising him as well in the bad? That's what the psalm calls us to do, to praise the Lord. And so what I want to do in the remaining time that I have left here is just look at four things this psalm tells us about praise. Four things. It's our duty to praise. We have to determine and work at praise. We need to be aware of the things that will distract us from praise. And we must recognize the delight of praise. And that's the fourth thing. And so, uh, the duty, the determination, the distraction, and the delight of praise. Now, I didn't write down who came up with that outline, but I'm going to promise you it's most likely Steve Lawson. He loves those letters. And so, the duty, the determination, the distraction, and the delight of praise. That's what we're going to look at. Let me quickly walk through these. And as I do, I want you to have this question in mind. Uh, 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 Do you praise God in the good times and the bad? The thing I just mentioned. Does your heart pant after God, long for God? Here's the first. It is the duty of the believer to praise. It's actually the the duty of anyone who's been created to praise God. He begins with a command here. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He ends with a command. Praise the Lord. They're not mere suggestions. He's not saying, you know what may be good? You know, in an otherwise terrible world, you have to put up with a whole lot of things you don't want to put up with. Maybe occasionally just praise the Lord. No, praise the Lord, he says. We must praise him. It's not optional. We must praise him. And the repetition here emphasizes its importance. It is our duty as those who have been created by God to praise him. Now, the word praise here has the idea of exuberant, boisterous shouting to God. Uh, No matter the circumstances, no matter what is going on in your life, your heart is to be so consumed with the glory and majesty of God so that praise just kind of bubbles up from within you. Now, just because God commands us to praise doesn't mean it becomes easy. When has any of God's commands been easy to fallen creatures? The answer is there aren't any. They're not easy. And so true biblical praise doesn't come easy easier either. Excuse me. And this is especially true when you consider that praise we are being called to here is not merely singing a few, a few Christian ditties. It's not flippant praise, shallow Praise that you can just do because the music leads you into it. I, 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 and I also can't imagine, it says one, one person, the psalmist talking to the, to the priest or to the, the preacher or the worship leader after the synagogue service back then and saying, hey, you know, I, I would have praised God today, but that sermon was a little too long. I, you know, I really would have praised God today, but, but I didn't like the hymn choice. See, the issue is not the hymn choice. The issue is not even the length of the sermon within bounds. The issue is your heart. It's my heart. As I said, the praise the psalmist is calling to uh, us to flows out of our heart. It flows out of a heart filled with gratitude to God, a heart filled with love for our Savior. It is praise that engages the mind and the soul. And, and so this kind of praise doesn't come easy. 
By showing up, that's a good step, but that's not the only step. Anybody can stand up and parrot the words that are in the hymnal. Anybody can read the scriptures. Everybody can bow their head and say the elements of worship as we do. That's somebody's talking about it. It's a heart filled with gratitude toward God and our Savior. And so we have to determine to do it. And that's our second point. We must be determined to praise. Look at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. Praise the Lord, he says. It's a command to everyone. Then he says, oh, my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. He's summoned everyone. He has said to everyone, look, everyone praise the Lord. He points that out. And yet now what he does is he speaks to himself. He's having a conversation with his own soul. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. He's holding this conversation. He's calling kind of soul. Look, you need to praise the Lord, O my soul. From the very core of his being, he's resolving. Soul, I'm speaking to you. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. As long as I am on this earth, while I live, while I have my being, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to the Lord. I will, I will, I will. Again, the the repetition demonstrates the urgency. This goes beyond the mere mood of the moment. You know, the psalmist is putting his mind and his will to the matter. This is not empty-headed, repetitious hallelujahs that are triggered by a certain kind of atmosphere, a certain kind of musical style. That, that makes me feel it emotionally. This kind of praise he is speaking of is, a, is an actually a lifestyle. It has emotion. It should be emotional, but it's a lifestyle. As long as I live, as long as I have my being, as long as I have my breath, he's not talking about singing a few songs on Monday, Sunday morning only and not worrying about it on a Monday. He's saying, when I go home, I will praise him. When I head off to work and I have to face that ogre of a boss, I will praise him. When the doctor gives me bad news, I will still praise him. When my 401k sinks in value, I will praise him. When my uh, my family rebels against me, I will praise him. When the election doesn't go my way, I will still praise him. It's a life attitude. It's a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week kind of praise. Of course, don't misunderstand, corporate worship is important. In fact, corporate worship, one of its beauties and benefits is that as we gather here, it prepares us to do this daily. Um, uh, but, but it's more than that. Um, it is required by God, but our praise doesn't stop after the service ends at 11.30 and then picks up again next Sunday at 8.15. It's a lifestyle, he is calling us to this, this God-centered way of life, this theocentric view of life. No matter what the world does, no matter what the world throws my way, he's saying, look, I will determine, I will, I will determine to still praise him. See, we must determine, even now, to worship God with our whole being for our whole life. And we must be willing to work at it. John Calvin said, because a godly life of self-denial is difficult, 
we too, like the psalmist, must strenuously discipline ourselves in the service of adoration. We must resolve in the strength of the Holy Spirit. We must be persistent. We must be steadfast. We must be tenacious. As long as I live, as long as I have my being, I will, I will, I will praise the Lord. We must pray that our heart's yearning, remember the question I mentioned when to pay attention, are we panning after God? We must, we must pray that our heart's yearning would be that of the psalmist in Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you hear the longing? Do you hear the craving, the hungering after God? May that be said of us, that we, we longed, we panted to praise the Lord. And so we must determine to praise God. But that's not all. We need to be aware that it is our duty and that we need to be determined to do it. But there's things that will distract us from praising the Lord. And that's our third point. Look at verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When, he bre- when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, it, it, when you look at these verses, they seem out of place. He's called us to worship. He's, he's determined to worship. I will worship. I will worship. And then he says, look, don't put your trust in princes. And, and, and it doesn't seem to have anything to do with worship. They're two different things. But the truth is it does. See, the fact of the matter is that one of the great hindrances to biblical, true biblical praise and worship is that we value others' opinions more than we value God's. Or to put it differently, we cannot praise God and trust man at the same time. When we do that, we rob God of all the glory due him. Now, what am I saying? Well, you can't ask other people for help. You just had to pray and praise. No, that's not the point. You can turn to a friend or a person for help, but we cannot put our trust in a person. That's reserved for God alone. Let me try to explain. We have a problem that comes up in our life, something beyond our means to handle. We can't do anything about it. Our immediate reaction is to find someone who can solve our problem to pull us out of the dilemma. Uh, uh, On the surface, we know that God is of supreme importance, but when push comes to shove and we find ourselves in a difficult situation, we quickly put our trust in those who have influence. We quickly put our trust in those who have earthly power. Our sin nature always wants to settle for something less than the triune God to worship. And we often worship wealth and we often worship power. They're, they're dangerously, someone said, attracting to us. And, and, and so we put our trust in powerful people. James Boyce says this, we trust politicians thinking that the president or Congress or mayor or some other highly placed persons will be able to solve our problems, but they can't even solve their own. We trust science or education or anything else to be our ultimate savior. We do not actually trust God and worship him. And yet, our pastor says that's, that is commonplace. That's our flesh. That's what we do. But it says it's folly. Why? Because they're mortal men. He says they're weak men. They're, they're dying men. And see, what happens when a prince dies, their plans perish with them. 
That's not true with God. If you put your trust in them, your hopes will perish with their passing. But that's not the outcome when you put your trust in God. And that's our, and that's our next point, the delight of praise. You see, in contrast to the one who puts their trust in men, verse 5 and 6 says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. The influential, powerful person comes and go, but the God of Jacob is here to stay. Now, verse 5 here is the last of what's called the Beatitudes in the Psalms. We know about Jesus' Beatitudes. But scholars tell us that there are 24 Beatitudes in the, in the book of Psalms. The first one is in the first Psalm, verse 1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This is the last one. Blessed is he whose help and hope is in God. You see, unlike the folly of trusting in men, when the Lord God is your help and hope, you will be blessed. That's the point he's making. And so the delight of praise is God himself. All the remaining verses teach us something about God. We just saw that he is our help and hope. But look what else we learn. He is the almighty creator of heaven and earth, verse 6, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Our help and hope are in the almighty creator. We also learn that he is forever faithful, end of verse 6, who keeps faith forever. See, not only does God save us, but he remains faithful to us after he saves us. And then we learn that God delights to sustain the weak and the needy. Look at verses 7 and 9. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He loves the righteous. That seems out of place. But the idea is that righteous people, especially then, are often those who are oppressed by the wicked. He watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, and he brings to ruin the way of the wicked. The powerful may seek to do the weak harm, but the Lord frustrates their plans. And so do you see why it's so foolish to, to trust in man? It's not just because they perish, that they do, but when we trust in them, we're not trusting in God. And in God, we are blessed. And the God in whom we place our trust, the God in whom we praise is all-powerful. He's almighty. He's always faithful, who cares for the weak and the needy. See, we can praise God when we are suffering. We can praise God when we are oppressed. We can praise God when things are not going our way. We can praise God in the midst of our trials and tribulations. Why? Because of who God is. Not because of the outcome, but because of who God is. It is surely our duty to praise God. But when we consider the fact that God described in this psalm, it's beyond just duty. It's not just duty. It's a delight to worship him. In light of who God is, is there any other response than this exuberant praise? Now, there's an important lesson here for us when it comes to this. The more we know God, I, I've mentioned this several times, but the more we know God, the more we'll want to praise him. We don't praise God in a vacuum. We, praise must have its reasons. And, and as one writer has said, the only reason we can worship God is that we know something about him. 
uh, something which excites our admiration, our, something that excites our gratitude, our faith, something that excites our joy. Worship is heartfelt. It's emotionally charged. Um, but it's, it's, it's emotionally charged not by the style of music, but by the knowledge of God. It's also rational and a thoughtful expression. True worship is always a response to what we know of God, what He's revealed to us about Himself. That's what's being rehearsed in this psalm. The psalmist is reflecting on what he knows about God, and this excites him. He, he says, look, God is all-powerful, and he wants to worship, and he's almighty. He, he's always faithful. Even when I'm faithless, he remains faithful. He cares for the weak. He cares for the needy. He cares for the sojourner. He cares for the righteous. All these truths I know about God, it just makes me want to praise him. And if that is true of the psalmist, if that is true of him, how much more should it be true of us who know God through his son, Jesus Christ? Let me close with this. The psalmist said, put not your trust in a son of man. But there is a son of man that we can put our trust in, right? The God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 7 of our psalm points us ultimately to the synagogue in Nazareth where, where Jesus stands up and he reads from the prophet Isaiah saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Luke 4, 18 and 19. See, Jesus is the one who executes justice for the oppressed. Jesus is the one who sets prisoners free. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind. It is Jesus who cares for the weak. It is Jesus who cares for the needy. It is Jesus who declares us righteous and cares for us. See, beloved, it is Christ who sets us free from the prison cell of sin. It is Christ who has opened our spiritual eyes that we see the truth, the truth about who we are, sinners, the truth about our salvation, the truth about God. Once we were blind, but now in Christ we see this truth. We know the truth. And what does the truth do? It sets us free. It sets us free to worship. Understand, if you feel shackled by your sin, if you feel oppressed by your guilt, then, then what you need to do is turn to Jesus for help. Put your hope in him. Bring all your guilt, all your shame to the cross of Christ, and you will be lifted up. You will be blessed. You will be forgiven. You will know the warm embrace of his love. And this knowledge, that reality, that you were a sinner dead in your sins, that you were an enemy of God, and now you're a child of God, that you've been declared righteous by God, you've been forgiven, you've been reconciled to him. All that knowledge should provoke in you not the duty to worship, although it could do that, but the desire to worship. It, it will excite your admiration. It will excite your gratitude. It will stimulate your faith. It will produce in you joy as you reflect on that reality. And so if you or I find myself lukewarm in my passion and praise for Christ, 
uh, then what am I to do? What are you to do? Then you're to rehearse in your heart all the benefits and blessings that are yours in Christ. Then you'll find yourself saying with the psalmist, I praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, that's our heart's desire. We know our duty, and yet we must admit it's not always our delight. We know that in you we are blessed, and yet we turn to man. And so we ask, Lord, that your spirit would work in our hearts in such a way that our delight in you would grow as we grow in our knowledge of who you are and what you have accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.